Hey everyone, welcome back to Here in Apologetics. I'm so pumped you're joining us today. As always, this podcast is brought to you guys that support us at patreon.com slash adhere apologetics. If you value what we do, please consider supporting. You can do that for as little as a dollar a month, just pennies a day, and that would be huge. Uh, my guest today is Father James Dominic Rooney. He is an assistant professor of philosophy at Hong Kong Baptist University and does work in metaphysics, medieval philosophy, Chinese philosophy, and philosophy of religion. He's actually on the show about a few months ago from the time that we're recording this right now, talking about the doctrine of hell. Uh, today, we're going to talk about Catholicism. I'm Protestant, and James, Father Rooney, is Catholic, and we're just going to talk about that a little bit today. So, Father Rooney, thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. How are you, Zach? I'm doing great. I'm super excited for this conversation. I loved our last conversation. It was so much fun, um, and I learned so much, and I'm kind of hoping for the same. So, just to get things started, Father Rooney, do you just want to talk a little bit about first, maybe like your personal journey and like um, what is like your in your personal life? Like how did like when did you become a Catholic? Like what's that kind of story? Well, in one respect, I was uh, Catholic pretty soon because, of course, I was baptized as a baby, but uh, I was not always a very dedicated Catholic. So I grew up like many Catholics without much knowledge of our faith or our beliefs. My um my parents, uh, my mother, uh, is from a family that is that is uh, Catholic from Europe, uh, and so they had we had Catholicism growing up in that sense. We went on Christmas at Easter to church, and uh, as I said, I was baptized as a baby. But really, I had very little religious education growing up. My father uh, was the source of our religious education indirectly, so he was. Uh, a Missouri Synod Lutheran who converted to Catholicism. Uh, and he converted largely due to reading the church fathers. And uh, this eventually, he was the one who went to church, and this indirectly then uh, served as a kind of, when I discovered the faith on my own and came to some of the, the conversion on my own in about elementary school, high school, uh, it was really because of um, the fathers, uh, specifically St. Athanasius. Basically what happened is I, I didn't really take any of it very seriously. And I don't even remember anything that was a particular catalyst. Uh, I think I should say this is sort of what happened to me. I was always interested in science, in, in things like physics and biology. <clears throat> and uh, Essentially, this is what happened. I studied physics, and I liked physics a lot, and uh, I started reading essentially the things I was interested in were really philosophy of physics, I came to find out. I was interested in things like causality, the nature of space and time, reading people like Stephen Hawking and Brian Greene in high school uh, and elementary school, seventh and eighth grade. And I, uh, I basically became intellectually convinced that God existed. Uh, it was a philosophical thing. I had started to read philosophy of physics books, and I became very convinced that that was the only way things made sense um, as a matter of, of, you know, questions about science. And then it was sort of funny because it was sort of like, well, when you're intellectually convinced God existed, then maybe you should think about a world in which God existed. What would that be like? What kind of things might be true? Uh, so that that's what led me to think of things like ethics and religion was from the same things I study now, metaphysics, right? Philosophy of science questions. Um, and then it was, I didn't really take religion very seriously, 
but essentially I, I fortuitously came upon a, um, a book by St. Athanasius, his On the Incarnation of the Word of God. It was in the back of the church, our Byzantine Eastern Catholic Church, uh, and uh, I read it and I realized that uh, theology wasn't a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> I thought, I just imagined, like I think a lot of people do, that theology is a lot of bullshitting opinions and things, and it doesn't have any basis in, in reasoning or fact or evidence. And I realized from St. Athanasius, well, hell, you can do theology. I mean, like it's a science. There are reasons why people believe things, and there's consistency, and there are reductions ad absurdum, right, and different kinds of arguments you can make for why we hold the things we do. And then it sort of started to come together, right? That I started to read more about it and realized that it all made sense. So that was sort of what eventually led me to, uh, to becoming Catholic and to thinking more seriously about things like the spiritual life and my vocation, and eventually led me to become a Dominican, uh, to join a religious order. I'm, I'm, I'm like a monk, right? So uh, that's how that all came about. Okay, so what I'd love to do now, thank you for sharing a little bit, Father Rooney, is talk about like why are you a Catholic now? Like if someone asked you, like, um, like there's obviously Protestants and there's Orthodox Christians, um, and there's other groups out there, uh, specifically, like why are you a Catholic? Yeah, so I wouldn't. Um, maybe it's better to say more why I think Catholicism is true might be a better way to sort of just just put it. And I think for me, the basic issue that I would have, I would work from, you know, I'm very theological. I work from first principles. So my basic issue is this. I think it's pretty clear from scripture to me, from the gospel, God's will is to found a church, a visible body of people united in faith and love to transform our lives, to witness to his grace for the world. I think this is, I think very simply, just part of the message of the gospel uh, that we find in the four Gospels, but also in things you see very explicitly in St. Paul, like his letter to the Ephesians. God came to draw out of all nations those people that were sincerely seeking him of all times and places, to bring them into one body and to consecrate them in his truth. Uh, that Gospel message, in one way, is the fact of the Church. The Church is part of the good news of the, the New Testament, because the body of Christ is constituted from his side on the cross, right? Uh, and our possibility of becoming one with Jesus in his own saving sacrifice and our recreation is part of the gospel, right? That's the gospel, is that this, this possibility of a new creation is open to us. And that's not merely my individual recreation, but our being formed anew as a people, as a member of the communion of saints. So that's where we get basically what I just told you, was why we have these famous three, four marks of the church. The church is one holy, catholic, and apostolic. So uh, God didn't just want a collection of persons united in their hearts, but he wanted a visible people collected from all times and places. That's a one church, catholic church, bonded by the word and sacraments, the holy catholic church, led by pastors that he appointed apostolic. Um, and I think these four marks of the church basically bring out, there are two implications from them that I think get us to where, where I think I'm going here. The first is I, what I'd call objective facts about the gospel. 
Uh, it seems to me that it's central to the message of Christianity. God wants us to believe certain things, and these things are important for our salvation, uh, and he commissioned some people <laughs> to preach and preserve these things. Uh, so th that was the point of, of the apostles and the disciples, right? Is God wanted to believe certain things, that's why he became human, uh, and these things are important for our salvation. Knowing the truth will set us free, and uh, the apostles were sent to do that, to go and baptize all nations. So I think if the gospel matters, if what we believe matters, as I think it does, then the church, the people Christ sent, need to have the means to set forth and control what constitutes that message preached by its own ministers. Otherwise, the church would be pretty powerless to do what Christ asked it to do, which was to preach the gospel and to appoint others to do so. Um, so in sum, if the church can't censor some people and say authoritatively, these are false prophets, these are false apostles, and call attention to or revoke their credentials, right? They say these people don't are not sent by Jesus, right? Or these people are not to be listened to, or these people were sent by us, but we, we're pulling back their credentials. They're preaching something we didn't tell them to. If the church can't do that, the church can't fulfill its mission to preach the gospel, I think. Um, so historically speaking, uh, while we're all given the mission to witness to Jesus in our lives, nobody can appoint themselves an authoritative witness of Jesus as the apostles were so appointed and as they appointed others, right? There was a distinction in the early church between the people who were the witnesses, right? Uh, the disciples and the apostles and the other uh, disciples of Jesus. Um, and I think this is just a corollary of the idea that scripture is not merely private revelation to single people by themselves, right? Uh, Christ's appearances were not just meant for the individuals to whom he appeared, but were intended to be transmitted to everybody, right? And he didn't appear to everybody. He appeared to those people he chose. Scripture tells us that, right? He appeared to certain people to be his messengers, to tell them and witness that they had seen Jesus. Um, so Christ's witnesses were given authority that others were not, which is why we pay attention to what they wrote, their scriptures, right? The, the New Testament as opposed to those written by other crazy people, the Gnostics, people that said they, they knew what Jesus really wanted or they, they were talking to some angels in the sky or something. We don't listen to them. We'd listen to the apostles. Um, this generates a debt to those historical people, to certain individuals in time and space, the apostles and the people they appointed. And so I think we as believers have an obligation to test whether right? A church, whether its pastors are within that fold administered by the successors of the apostles or not. And you find this test applied over and over in early Christian history. So this was one of the first fights in Christianity was between precisely false prophets, right? That happens in the early church is the fight with the Gnostics, who I already mentioned. Valentinians were a kind of Gnostic. They're even, uh, there are some mentioned in the Bible, right? these kind of Gnostics in the book of Revelation, uh, or these, these sort of sects, right, that claim to be sent but, but aren't. Um, but the early Christians uh, come up with the same solution. Uh, already in the Bible, right, they point to the people Jesus sent, right, the apostles. And you find very early what happens is Ignatius of Antioch, Irenaeus, our early Christian bishops, who say, these are the, the bishops, 
are the people that, that Jesus sent. They're the ones who are appointed by the apostles, and they have the, the mission from God. These other people don't. The Gnostics, the people who claim to be inspired. Later, there are these people, the Montanists, right? So it happens over and over again. People claim to be sent by God, but aren't. Uh, and so we need some way to determine who's sent by God and who isn't, and who's reading scripture right in that sense, and who isn't. Uh, I like this. I was reading the other day, this, uh, this is from St. Cyprian of Carthage. This is his treatise on unity of the church. He had a, a, a section where he was talking about, I thought this was good. He was saying, you know, uh, heresies not only have frequently been originated, but continue to originate. Uh, while the perverted mind has no peace, uh, the church has peace in unity. Uh, the Lord permits and suffers these things to be. Uh, because the discrimination of the truth is testing our minds and our hearts, that the sound faith of those who are approved may shine forth with manifest light. The faithful are approved because they are uh, uh, they are unified. The souls of the righteous and the unrighteous are already divided. And he says this is this is the sign of people who are divided. They are those who, of their own accord, without any divine arrangement, set themselves to preside among the daring strangers assembled. Who appoint themselves clergy without any law of ordination, who assume to themselves the name of bishop, although no one has ordained them to the episcopate, whom the Holy Spirit points out in the Psalms as sitting in the seat of pestilence, plagues, and spots of faith, deceiving with serpents' tongues, blah, 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 right? So St. Cyprian, and this happens right throughout Christian history, right? People talking about whether somebody is a true or a false witness, a true or a false prophet, uh, we all need to do this. I think it comes down to a question of history, who is in fact uh, a successor to the apostle. And I think when we look at the history, the historical facts clearly also witness that the historical apostolic church Christ founded from the early church is represented by those things that we now associate with the Catholic and Orthodox churches, which historical Protestant churches have lost or just never had, uh, bishops, specific kinds of doctrines and sacraments uh, about the sacraments and other things. Um, so for instance, uh, well, I, I was going to list a few, but I'd say that there are ways in which the doctrines have developed over time and how they've laid out, uh, but the logical consistency of the whole follows quite clearly from the apostolic age, uh, as we see in the progression from the first seven ecumenical councils and the hammering out of the creed we recite on Sunday, the Nicene Creed. Uh, those first seven councils, if you read them uh, in their canons and acta, are clearly throughout endorsing an ecclesial model that, as I said, resembles the Catholic and Orthodox churches. They have holy orders, bishops, priests, and deacons. They talk about the sacraments and treat them as if they transmit grace uh, by virtue of their connection to Christ. Uh, they talk about the use of icons in worship images. That's, that's the Seventh Council. Many of them talk about monasticism, veneration of the Blessed Virgin, uh, was officially endorsed in the, in the Council of Ephesus, right, and invocation of the saints in the liturgy. So there's lots of those kind of things that come up in the early church that are pretty clear. And it's not very plausible to me that any serious doctrinal break occurred between Nicaea and what happens afterwards. We can find all those doctrines in utero in previous centuries, 
And the believers of the time who lived through those changes didn't find there to be any radical break. They didn't protest. They didn't think there was something lost. The debates at the time were not at the sort of debates one finds during the Reformation. So debates at the time were around things like Manichaeism, Arianism were two big heresies, right? Arianism, that Jesus was not of the same substance or essence as the Father. Manichaeanism, that a uh, good God created the spirit world of the spirit, and evil God was the God of the Old Testament. Uh, many of those debates presuppose things in common with Catholics that Protestants would later reject. The Arians believed in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, the baptismal regeneration of infants. Uh, and the people that rejected those things did so on a radically distinct basis from, from most Protestants. They thought matter was evil or the Old Testament God was, was a false God or something like that. Um, so to me then, I just reiterate and say the basic issue is simply that it seems to me the church has a message. It has a God-given commission to preach that message and that message affects the salvation of the world. That's the gospel. This requires us to be able to identify those persons whom God gave that commission to and to note how that commission is transmitted. Because we know God founded one church, and I think the only historically plausible candidate for that church is the church of the apostolic era, whose modern successors are only plausibly the Catholic and Orthodox churches. Um, so I'll just sort of end there and say that in my opinion, adding in the papacy at this point is an unnecessary complication. Uh, it's obvious to me that, that a lot of these things we share in common are, are not going to be uh, substantially identical with the Protestant churches of the Reformation, let alone anything like most mainstream Protestant churches today. So that's probably the best place to start is just to deal with the sort of ecumenical things that the, the apostolic churches, Orthodoxy, Catholicism share in common. And then we can think about other stuff later about like where the papacy comes in specifically, because I think that the basic stuff is really just about a visible church, a visible church with visible ministers who are mm. apostolic. Okay. So this is really helpful. Thank you so much for kind of walking through this. So if I'm getting like the gist of what what's happening here and thinking about like this argument and like, like why you, why you're Catholic it kind of it seems like to me it's founded upon the idea of like you talked about like the church being some like a something that's like bonded together like where there is this unity of like all members of the church um and this is something that's like you said you, you mentioned the word like apostolic a lot we're coming from the apostles um and their successors you have these people who are like ordained to be leaders and there's like this like structure um to the leadership like kind of like structure of the church something that you think uh, you only find in probably the Catholic and Orthodox churches uh, and not like the Protestant world. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So I guess maybe my one wonder about this is like, i see like that makes sense to me, but then I wonder like, do like, why, like specifically, like, why are you ruling out like Protestantism here? Um, because I'm sure like you could find Protestants and like, I'd probably say something similar. Uh, who would say something like, well, we are all unified. We all are together through like the giving of the Holy Spirit or something else along these lines. Um, what's the problem with something like that? Well, I think one of the facts is going to be, this is, this is where I think you have sort of two options, uh, how you want to deny it. <laughs> I think uh, it's going to be that Protestants just aren't united uh, in lots of visible ways. So here's the first way they're not united, including with Catholics and with Orthodox, right? We, we are just as a fact not united. 
here's mm -hmm. one of the ways we're not united. We don't believe the same things. Mm -hmm. We don't believe the same things. And we don't believe the same things when it comes to things we think are important. So one way you could just do this is you could say nothing really matters. <laughs> All of those distinctions in what we believe don't really matter. Uh, now, I, I'm going to say that that I think is I, I think that's actually just the critical question. Um, you know, there were some Protestants of recent centuries, sort of liberal Protestants who had basically that kind of view, right? And a lot of uh, uh, non-confessing uh, Protestants, not non-juring Protestants had similar views that really creeds don't make any difference. You can believe whatever you want uh, as long as you have some minimal doctrine of some sort. I, I think that that's, that's pretty wrong. That's also certainly not historical Protestantism. Uh, so Calvin and Luther and, you know, they, they thought heresy was serious, right? Because just like I do, they think that what you believe matters uh, and what the Bible teaches has implications, right? We have duties to believe what the Bible tells us and we have duties to do what the Bible tells us to do. For instance, baptism or something, right? So even Baptists call those ordinances, right? Uh, precepts, mm. things God has, has told us to do, that that's why they would say there's something wrong if we don't do them. Um, now, I, I think there are more than just commands God gave us, but I mean, I think there are clearly objective things that God wants us to believe and wants us to do in scripture that are part of the gospel. And I think we pretty clearly don't agree on what those things are. And so to that extent, I think we are not properly unified. And we should say, everyone should say, be able to say pretty clearly, this is like the ecumenical movement of the past century, is to say, there's a problem here, <laughs> right? We need to say there's a problem here. God wanted one church where we believe and profess the same things uh, on what we think is important. So, right, we can agree to disagree on things we think are not central. Uh, and Catholics have those things too. We think there are some things that are not central that people can disagree on who are all good Catholics. Uh, but the problem is we Protestants, Catholics, Orthodox disagree on things we think are important, essential, you know. Uh, and so I think it, 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 it's not going to be the case that if we're all united just as God wants us, he's not going to want us to disagree on important things like that. Right. Mm -hmm. Just by, I mean, if we think he taught us that in the Bible, right, and there's a right answer about what he taught in the Bible, then he can't have wanted us to believe different things. He, he wants us to believe what he taught. Right. So I think it's not going to be the right kind of unity to just say we all have the Holy Spirit, because I will agree with you on this. Right. I Here's my perspective about about the Protestants in general is I think, of course, there are lots of Protestants that are in the grace of God and even have right faith. I think they are mixed up Orthodox Christians would be my way of putting it. Um, mm -hmm. So I think lots of Protestants from my perspective are people that are trying to love and have faith in God according to what they think he reveals, but they are just by accident, they don't know any better in my, this is my sort of approach to things. And of course, I think, of course, they are united to me in, in their relation to the church through the Holy Spirit. 
they're not in the visible church in the same way I am because they're not in union with the bishops and the people God put in charge of it. But if they believe, they're united in one way. If they believe, if they're trying to believe what God wants them to believe, if they're baptized, then certainly they're already a part of the church in a visible way, in in a way related to me too, right? That's why we Catholics don't rebaptize people who've been baptized in other Protestant churches. We think the baptism was valid. Um, so uh, we think we're related already in many different ways to Protestants. I just think a lot of them are, if I can put it this way, kind of mixed up uh, in ways that don't affect their salvation necessarily. But I think, of course, right, if I was mixed up, <laughs> that means I'm, I'm not right about something. I've mixed up something that might be important. I might not be uh, culpable for it. I'm not going to hell for it necessarily but I would want somebody to correct me. So I think in this case, that's, that's sort of my position is it's regrettable that all these Protestant churches and the Catholic and Orthodox churches are separated. And so I try to, you know, my sort of job is to try to, you know, we want to get people together. We want mm -hmm. to uh, reunite the church. That's the point of the ecumenical movement, theological dialogue to say, well, maybe we've misunderstood each other. Maybe we've just made certain kinds of mistakes in understanding each other, or maybe we can just make progress. Maybe we can try to show each other that maybe we we really uh, can come to the same conclusion somehow. Uh, so I think I think conversion is is obviously part of what we're all called to do, and and what's important is that we aim at the truth and to find out what God really wanted us to do and to believe. So that's what I think is important. And that's sort of what I would just insist on. The, the, the bad thing is to say it doesn't matter. It doesn't mm -hmm. really matter. I think that's, that's like the enemy of everything good and holy, is to say it doesn't really matter what God wanted us to believe. You know, believe whatever you want. I think that's, that's just a kind of excuse uh, to, 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 to be lax and to, um, I mean, it's a kind of unbelief. It's a kind of skepticism that we can mm -hmm. know what God wants us to do. Uh, and I think that's contrary to Christianity. Yeah, I think this is helpful. Um, and I totally agree with you. Like this, like this idea does matter. Like it does matter. Like um, this debate, like what, what did God actually intend for us? Like how did he intend for us to be like a part of a church and like things like that it really does matter. So one thing I want to do, and then we can get into some objections just to like understand your view more is when we're thinking about the relationship between like the Catholic church and like Protestants, uh, you're, it seems like to me, like generally, you're like with conditions about like things like them actually like trying to like pursue God and like uh, baptism. There's some questions here we have to figure out. But like broadly speaking, like Protestants would be like part of like would you even say like part of the church? I mean, that's kind of like how would you word that? Because it seems like to me you're not like oh all Protestants are like not Christians, but like how would you word that? Is what I'm asking. Yeah, I I would say obviously they're Christians. So we. We Catholics actually have kind of technical terms, which I don't need to really give you. We call things, we call some groups ecclesial communities. We call some other groups churches uh, in our ecumenical dialogue. So we like, basically our way of thinking of it is like this. People are related in various ways to the church. Okay. And, and you're, everybody is saved by being related to the church, but not everybody is in the church uh, visibly. In this mm -hmm. life so you're saved through here's how you're saved faith hope and love those are necessary and sufficient conditions to be saved right uh those things give you a relation to the church faith hope and love um so 
the, the, the person who's out on the desert island who doesn't know anything about Christianity, who, who comes to knowledge of God and wants to believe in him and do what he wants, uh, who loves God that way, has a relationship to the church on our point of view uh, already. Um, they, have, they have faith, hope, and love. So they already have a relationship to Christ and to his church. Um, I have the same view, you might say, about, about Protestants, who obviously know a lot more about God and, and his will and, and what God wants of us than somebody on a desert island that doesn't know anything about Christianity. So, of course, those people have a more intimate relation to the church. They're just not, as I said, in my opinion, they're sort of like good Catholics that are mixed up. Right, so there, there, there are people who are baptized Christians, right? Who who believe what's in the Bible, that want to do what's right. They're just sort of mixed up who the who the right pastors are, something like that, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that's, you know, in many cases the mistakes are understandable. I don't have anything against them, but as as I said, I mean, I think it's important. I don't think it it doesn't matter. So I think everyone should be trying to to aim for unity in the Christian Church. Uh, and, uh, you know, I have my own views because I'm Catholic about what that involves, but I think it, it should be a matter of agreement among Christians that there's something wrong about there being different, different groups, different churches. Uh, mm -hmm. there should be one visible church. I think that, that really should be something we can all endorse. Okay. Yeah. That's super helpful. Thank you, uh, Father Rooney. So let's get into some objections now. Um, so one is this idea of like the priesthood. Um, so one of the things I've thought about with like Catholicism and I'm not super like, Oh, like, I know I'm right here, but it's just a thought I've had is like wondering, um, as an outsider to the Catholic church, like never been Catholic, um, like what's the role of like the priesthood? Because something like I always grew up assuming is like, there's this priesthood of like all believers where anyone who's like a Christian and is like, um, given the gift of the Holy spirit, uh, has certain like spiritual giftings. And from that is like, kind of like on their way, um, to like serving the church and whatnot. Uh, so how would you make sense of that? Cause it seems like to me, like I always look at it on the outside and I see the priesthood and I'm like, well, why is there like this special group, um, that seems to do a lot of the like liturgical functions almost. So, yeah, what, what are your thoughts here, Father Rooney? Yeah, so I mean, on the one hand, I'll just say right up front, we, we explicitly endorse the priesthood of all believers. So that's mm -hmm. that's straightforwardly our view. So I yeah. should say that's our sacrament, actually, of, you know, with baptism, part of the sacrament of baptism in the early church, that we now, we, we tend to think of it as a separate sacrament, but confirmation is the seal of the sacrament of baptism. It's, it's an ordination to the priesthood is what it is. It's, it's the use of the same uh, holy oil that represents the Holy Spirit chrism that we use in ordination of priests and bishops. We, we put it on everybody. Um, so it's a visible symbol, as it were, that we believe in the priesthood of all believers. Now, clearly, if a Catholic priest's role were to live your spiritual life vicariously, right, <laughs> that uh, he possesses the Holy Spirit for you because you can't possess the Holy Spirit. Well, that would pretty obviously give us an infinite regress because no priest would be able to have spiritual life of his own because every priest <laughs> needs to go to another priest for confession and things like that. Um, so that would be pretty silly, right, if that's what we believed. So, however, I want to just say, even though that's a mistaken caricature of why we have a priesthood, it ironically can help us understand the role of the priesthood in a general way. 
something mm -hmm. about living the spiritual life with other people or through other people. So, I mean, I think the basic thing to understand is the priesthood is, is very simple. The priesthood is the continuation of Christ's mission on earth. Um, the authority he gave to his apostles. I've already mentioned that before, right? But I mean, everybody has pastors, right? That's not just that's not just a Catholic thing. I mean, mm -hmm. we have special outfits for them and things like that. But I mean, the basic the basic stuff is pretty simple. Why do you have pastors? Well, because not everybody's a good preacher. Not everybody's a good teacher. Not everybody is 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 capable of doing administration. Well, guess what? Now you have a theology of holy orders. That's what we did, is we, mm -hmm. we we just break that out into bishop, priest, and deacon. Bishops are regional managers. Priests are, right, they're preachers in charge of the region, right? And, and priests are in charge of individual churches, preaching on an ordinary basis, and deacons were supposed to be administrators, right? So that's basically the whole, the whole idea from the early church, is that those are offices those are gifts people have that some people don't have to be teachers in that. And nobody should be doing that by their own authority. It's an authority that comes from God, right? Um, so then the priesthood is basically these two things. It's the effective means of communicating the gospel to others, and it's a symbolic means of God's presence to the church, right? I mean, a pastor represents God to his people. That's what he does. Mm -hmm. He represents the gospel. Uh, that's the same with a Protestant pastor as it is with a Catholic priest. We Catholic priests just, uh, you might say, play it up, or we, uh, we, we, we recognize that as an important part of the, the role. Um, because the apostles were witnesses, authoritative preachers of Christ's message. St. Paul says, we appeal to you to be reconciled to God. The priesthood is just those people appointed by the apostles, by the church, to be his preachers and his symbolic presence to the people. So they're just to oversee the good order in the church, to teach, govern, and sanctify. Um, but I think this is, the, this is the good question. Why did God do this? So, so as you said, I just started off with the same idea. Different people have different gifts. So why mm -hmm. did God want to set up some people with these gifts and some people without? And give these people sort of symbolic roles and authority and all that kind of stuff, apart from just giving them the gifts of being good teachers. Why did God do that instead of like, maybe he could have just given private revelations to everybody. Maybe Jesus could just appear to everybody on a piece of toast in the morning and tell them, you know, what they need to do that day. Uh, well, it seems pretty obvious to me why God doesn't do that. Um, and the idea is, is sort of the bad caricature of the priesthood, which is precisely that we don't live our spiritual lives in isolation from each other. We have to depend on each other. And I mentioned no priest, not even the Pope, can forgive his own sins. We can't even really say Mass by ourselves. In the old days, there was a prohibition. We've gotten rid of it recently in, since the, the 1950s, 1960s. But uh, every Mass had to have one other person present. The priest couldn't say Mass by himself, the Eucharist by himself. And the idea was it was symbolic. Our salvation depends on other people all the way down. And that makes sense of the fact we're a church. We're branches on the one vine that's Christ, and we're connected to each other. And so each person is given spiritual gifts, uh, and we admit that. But I think even if you look at the Bible about spiritual gifts, this fact about our unity, this ecclesial fact, is precisely the criteria by which St. Paul 
discerns what gifts we have and how to use them, right? Because he says, we are to use those gifts for the upbuilding of his body, the church. We find those gifts in the community, in the, in the assembly, right? No one is to absent himself from the assembly. And our gifts use is controlled by the good order of the church and her pastors, right? St. Paul gives them directions, right? He says, let nobody, let them keep silent in church, not be disorderly about how they do it, right? He's giving them laws, orders, <laughs> right? About how to use the spiritual gifts, right? Um, so in Catholicism today, of course, we uh, believe those spiritual gifts exist in many different ways outside of any formal institutional framework. But actually, we also, right, that's where we get this idea, aside from the priest, bishop, and deacon, we have these other orders in the church. And there's an old use of the word order, right? Religious orders, like mine, are one kind of idea about how we sort of institutionalize those gifts. People, my order was founded to be like teachers in theology and philosophy and that kind of thing. So, of course, that, that's a purpose, right, for a spiritual gift. We channel the spiritual gifts into these places to help people develop them. Uh, but we also had other kinds of orders like theologians or widows, different states of life for people, hermits or virgins. And so uh, those kind of spiritual gifts uh, get recognized by the church and we try to, you know, uh, promote them. Uh, but I think that those these two things aren't in conflict is what I'm saying, right? The, the fact some people have gifts to run things and be the teachers and that kind of thing, to be administrators, is not in conflict with the fact some people have other gifts in the church to be healing or, you know, other things, to be good prayers, right? So, like, in your view, then, when we're thinking, like, through this, what we're, what you're trying to say, Father Rooney, is, like, when we're thinking about, like, why, like, why do you need a certain, like, maybe like a priesthood um, in a more specific sense to like, say, like conduct a mass um, is because of this idea of like the spiritual giftings and like some people have gifts to teach and some people have gifts to serve. And it's, it's that's just kind of how it works out is like, there's just different gifts for different people. Correct. And we think that that, that discernment goes hand in hand with the individual and the church. So that's how we decide who gets to be made a priest, Right. People, people apply, right? People go to seminary, right? We discern whether they have that gift or not, right? And that's that's the point. Okay. Um, another objection here is like thinking about the pap the papacy. Um, we haven't really talked about the Pope at all yet. So is there anything you want to say first about like the papacy before we get into this objection now that I'm thinking about it? Uh, well, I mean, uh, I, think, I think in responding to your objection, I'll tell you what the papacy is. So why don't we... <laughs> Why don't you just tell me your objection and then I'll get to it? Sure. Yeah. So the question here that I'm thinking about is like, is the papacy like necessary? So what I'm thinking about is like a sense of like, even like almost like a mere Christianity, which you've addressed already, um, which is helpful. And my question is like, what is the point of like having um, a papacy? Like if we, if we have a mere Christianity where say that like you can be in right standing with God through like belief in Jesus. And like you talked about faith, hope, and love, um, there's your three, like, why a Pope? Why is this necessary? Yeah. Well, I mean, as I said, right at the beginning, I think this is sort of the mere Christianity idea. What seems to me to be missing there is that the central task of Christianity is pretty clearly to spread the gospel and to found the church, right? Mm -hmm. So part of the gospel itself is the message Christ has constituted a new holy people, one people formed of both Jews and Gentiles, 
whose job is to offer a sacrifice of perfect praise to God, right? So that's that's all the stuff right in the Bible, right? Um, well, here's here's where you get the papacy, I think, is what is the Pope? So let me just say, so Zach, what is the Pope? What is the papacy about? What is it? Yeah, what um, from what I've listened to and read to understand, the idea is like, um, it's drawing back to St. Peter, who's almost like, or he is like the head of the church. Um, and there's a succession um, from successors that held like a position of like the Bishop of Rome. Uh, and they just the successors from St. Peter. Um, and it goes down and it's someone that has like authority that like when he's making, I forget the exact wording of what you'd say. Um, like the, it's not theological statements, but there's a certain thing that like when the Pope goes from that, um, what he's saying is like binding to all the church for like all of history for the rest of time, basically. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so I think the basic thing to look at there in what you said, you got a lot of the right parts there. Uh, the basic idea is we mentioned right up front, the church is constituted as one and it has mm -hmm. pastors and the basic pastors are bishops. Those are the basic, the basic pastors. In the early church, they didn't even differentiate very clearly bishop and priest, right? That's, that's a sort of uh, comes, comes to be more definite later, but a bishop the basic the basic pastor right and uh in the early church the idea was uh the papacy uh is are those bishops that are the successors of peter in rome peter and paul so the bishop of rome is is the uh uh is is the pope pope is just papa uh, daddy it's it's a nickname for that sort of person in that in that position i've met the other pope there's some other bishops got the title pope and there's one in alexandria so the coptic patriarch coptic orthodox patriarch he came to my hometown he's he's the pope of alexandria okay so uh there are other popes it's uh um but the idea is when we talk about the pope we're talking about the bishop of rome and the basic idea is really just this uh if the church is one its bishops need to be one need to form one group, one college is the term we use in contemporary theology. We say that the, the college of bishops. So if they're one college, if they're supposed to be one in what they teach and the sort of decisions they make, well, how do you do that when they disagree with each other, when they fight? Um, well, basically what you need is a process for deciding who's right and who's wrong. And uh, not just like theologically who's right and who's wrong, but I mean like who gets to say who's in the right and who's in the wrong in the legal sense, right? Who's, mm -hmm. who's, how are we supposed to make these decisions together? And there's going to be a problem that it's not going to be just consensus, right? Because especially you can see with heresy, that's not going to work, right? The person who uh, is the Arian bishop who says Jesus is not really God is not going to agree to being condemned, right, <laughs> by the other bishops. So you're not going to get perfect consensus on any issue uh, ever, uh, among mm -hmm. especially like contentious theological issues. So how do we decide those important issues? Well, the church basically developed a decision-making procedure that was they should make the decisions as a group, right? Mm -hmm. They should make the decisions as a group. This happens in the Acts of the Apostles uh, and... Uh, uh, that's been the way the church has decided things. 
But the part of the 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 mission there, or part of the the unity in the decision making, has also been that there need to be uh, attempts to uh, mediate between bishops if groups of bishops are fighting. So this requires something of a supreme court. Basically, what you need is a supreme court. Um, and in this case, what, what we end up coming to is we say, this Supreme Court, there are different ways we can, we can try to resolve differences that are like normal means. But ultimately, there's going to be a point at which you, you should need to say something like, well, there's going to, be to need, there's going to need to be a sort of procedure or law that comes from God, not merely from us, when it comes to the deciding between uh, serious debates uh, among bishops and serious kinds of controversies. Um, so in this case, uh, I think it comes down to whether you think the church is one and has the authority to determine its own message. Uh, if so, there needs to be a means for determining how the church governs itself and its pastors, makes laws, determines what's heresy, uh, and that's going to need some sort of God-given means for deciding conflicts among its pastors. Uh, and the papacy is basically supposed is is the only plausible, I think, historical answer to this question. And it goes all the way back to the early church, but the diocese of Rome and the bishop of, of that diocese, uh, given his connection to Peter and Paul, got recognized very early as being like this special, having this special position because he was, he was appointed by one of these early witnesses to Jesus, right? That got, that was supposed to be the head of the, the apostles, right? And the other uh, bishops that were founded uh, the other dioceses, the other churches, were founded from certain central churches, right? Um, so those central churches are like Jerusalem, Rome, right? And uh, Peter and Paul got to be prominent there. So the Bishop of Rome, the person that succeeded there, uh, was considered to have this special role among all the bishops as basically the Supreme Court. And this gets recognized in... Uh, Famously, in, in certain ways, uh, the Council of Sardica is probably the most uh, prominent one. 343 recognizes a sort of universal privilege. Any bishop in the world that's having a, a debate uh, with another bishop can appeal to Rome uh, as like the, the court of last appeals. Um, and uh, that privilege and that ability of the, the Roman church to make these uh, determinations among bishops was invoked very early. Um, and uh, it was implicitly recognized then in how the church made those group decisions, those ecumenical councils. So all the seven ecumenical councils involved the, the Bishop of Rome sending legates, sending representatives uh, who were considered necessary for the council to be, to be valid, for the decisions to be representative of the whole church. Um, so that became his role, was to help ensure that the bishops were making a decision together. So there was famously, I like this, this is a good representative of what, what this role is. There was a thing called the Robber Council of Ephesus in 449, which was a sort of council that started with a legate of the Pope and, and 127 bishops. And they were trying to make some decisions about uh, the unity of Christ. It was one of those Christological debates uh, leading up to what's called monophysitism, the condemnation of monophysitism at the Council of Chalcedon in 451. Um, uh, but 
the the debate there uh, broke down. The emperor tried to impose his own will, and uh, the the legates of the Pope of Rome uh, canned it. They said, uh, "We nullify the proceedings. We're leaving. We're going home. Have a nice day, everybody." Uh, and the 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 emperor tried to push the results through, and the people in charge were later accused at the Council of Chalcedon. Uh, as as acting unlawfully because they had tried to hold an ecumenical council without the apostolic see, which is never allowed, they said in the the Acts of Chalcedon. Um, so there was a a very early and persistent principle that the the role of the Pope was a sort of sanction that things represented the whole church. So he, that's his role. Is basically he's a Supreme Court, something like that, right? Mm. And and all the other stuff that the Pope does. Uh, in special ways, come from that. So uh, it, all the stuff about him being infallible in extraordinary circumstances and all that, uh, these get debated among Catholics to, to how, how exactly they're supposed to work in that. But basically, the, 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 the fundamentals from the early church are clear that the Pope's role is like a Supreme Court judge. And so the idea, this is then the idea of why he gets infallibility in that, is because he can sometimes... He sometimes would have to perhaps decide a case that might involve doctrinal stuff that would be outside of an ecumenical council. So the idea would be he represents the whole church. So he he has a role like the ecumenical council, just like ecumenical councils are infallible. If he has to judge some case that's important outside of the context of such a council, he would he would also not be able to make a mistake. Uh, I mean, he wouldn't be able to, to teach error. Um, so that's part of our faith, though. Uh, it's not special about the papacy. It's the same belief that the bishops are successors of the apostles. They have a mission from God. So the whole college of the bishops can't be making a mistake when they teach something definitively. Um, so the Pope's, the Pope's special role in that regard is just because he like represents them, because he's like the, the head bishop. So that's why... He has that special uh, that special role in some circumstances that we call papal infallibility. It's really just a, a consequence of our belief about the church in general that the bishops are infallible in what they teach together. Okay, thank you. There, there's a lot of like really helpful things here that you brought up. Like Father Rooney helped me think about this even further. Um, one thing I want to go to is like thinking about like the role of like you talked a lot about like when there's conflict um in the church and like trying to figure out like what's like the right thing and th and whatnot um and that's when we're drawing on like the pap the papacy uh to help us think i also wonder like what in your role is like the role of the holy spirit in these in these instances because i'm thinking of passages like i think it's john 14 um yeah john 14 where like jesus talks about like giving us like the holy spirit to help us like through as we go through things um so as a protestant i've just in the past, just leaned heavily on that. And I'm like, okay, well, we, just, we have the Holy Spirit that um, maybe I'm wrong, but God through his Holy Spirit is going to guide like the church broadly uh, through things. Uh, as a Catholic, like, how do you make sense of like that? Like, where does that fit into the picture as well? Well, obviously we think it's true. <laughs> so <laughs> I think uh, the Holy Spirit does guide us and guides all of us. So, I mean, I don't think that's a problem. I think the, the difficulty and the clear difficulty with the idea, let's just trust in the Holy Spirit, is a lot of people think they got the Holy Spirit, right? And sometimes it's just gas. So we need to figure out, 
right? Uh, that's part of the idea, right? Is sometimes there are communal decisions of the church that are contentious, uh, and there needs to be a process for deciding them, especially when it, so, I mean, basically you just need to study the history of the church to understand why these things are important is because there were big fights about really important stuff, right? Like the Arian controversy is like the big one that comes to mind, right? That's why this stuff developed, is why the church, the church didn't just make this up in an afternoon. That's why we have this thing we, we tend to talk about sometimes, we call it doctrinal development. But I mean, it, it's just ecclesial development, right? Uh, the church didn't just come up with doctrine for funsies, right? Transubstantiation. These terms, consubstantial, transubstantiation, the Trinity, were invented. They were invented because there were challenges and they were people thought they were important challenges, right? They, they start out by saying, oh, well, let's all try to work it out. But sometimes those differences become obvious that they are serious and they're not going to be reconciled and there needs to be decisions that are made. So that's that's basically the history of the early church. That's how this thing, the Council of Nicaea, comes about, is because people argued, uh, I think, very convincingly. I mean, I'm on the the Orthodox side here with Saint Athanasius, as I mentioned. He's he's how I became Catholic. So a Athanasius argued that the, these views that Jesus was not really God would be very very serious, right? If people believed them, they're not optional, right? whether Jesus is God or whether he's not. Some people tried to do that. The emperor, uh, the emperors after Athanasius tried to work out a compromise and say, well, maybe we can say he's sort of like God. It was the homoousios view, right? Um, but, uh, uh, you know, Athanasius argued, well, it's a church dividing issue, right? Whether, whether Jesus is God or not. You can't kind of be God. You're either God or you're not God, right? And if Jesus is God, it makes a big difference. So his famous his famous mantra, he, he kept saying over and over again, he said, God became man so that man might become God. Whatever God has not assumed, God has not redeemed. So uh, that's an important issue. And then it becomes important to decide, well, how do we determine whether we should believe that or not, right? How do we determine whether, whether the church should believe what Athanasius is teaching or should it should should Arianism be the right view? Um, well, both sides thought the Holy Spirit was guiding them, <laughs> right? Uh, both sides thought they were reading the Bible correctly. They both appealed to the Bible. Um, so, of course, this is then how church councils happen, right? People pray, right? They get together and they ask God to guide them, right? So we make a good decision. Uh, the bishops and the pope are not exempt from that, right? We think that's how these decisions are made, right? Is we we ask God to, to help guide us. But the point of the papacy is not a rival to the Holy Spirit, just like the bishops or teachers in your church are not a rival to the Holy Spirit teaching us, right? That's what John says too, right? You don't need anybody to teach you because you have the interior anointing of the Holy Spirit. Well, you still think you need a pastor at church. You still think you need Sunday school teachers, right? Um, because that's not what John means. He doesn't mean you don't need pastors, you don't need teachers uh, that way. He means God will teach you what's important, that the knowledge of God that's really critical uh, comes through interior, uh, through, through our interior relationship with God, through our deepening of personal faith. Um, so I don't think these two things are opposed, is what I'm saying. But I think we need both, right? 
you need the Holy Spirit interiorly, but you also need the church. The church does come to points where it's got to make decisions about uh, about these things. I mean, you just think of, as I said, like in your own church, right? Somebody has to make a decision, right? If there's somebody in your Sunday school who is teaching people something you think is morally evil, you know? Uh, I mean, pick, pick something you think is morally evil. Uh, somebody is teaching people it's okay to beat their wives and is teaching that at your school, at your church, right? And you say, well, who get, doesn't, shouldn't somebody decide, right, whether this, is, this, this person should continue to be employed by us, <laughs> right? Because they represent us, right? We're paying them to do this. Well, you need somebody to make the decision. You don't necessarily need one person, right? You can get the church council together. You have to have some method to say how we represent ourselves. So the papacy is just part of that, that story about how we make decisions that represent the church. So that's why I, I don't want to focus on the Pope himself. It's all about councils and things, right? The church is governed together. The Pope is just part of that story about how we make representative decisions for the whole church. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I appreciate how you're kind of framing the like the context of like the importance of the church and like it's not just about like the Pope and whatnot. So one more objection that I want to get to, Father Rooney, before we wrap up here is like the idea of like the bad popes objection. So throughout history, like you could find lots of examples of bad popes who've done like all sorts of like morally corrupt things. Uh, in your view, like if this is like um, the person that's like holding like the seat of Peter um, through that lineage, like how do you make sense of this um, if the Catholic Church is like the true church? Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, how many scandals are there in Protestant churches with bad pastors? I mean, uh, I don't want to put a put a, uh, a thumb in anyone's eye or what aboutism. I'm just pointing out, I think that the point here is, um, I don't think it has any bearing at all <laughs> on whether the Catholic Church is the true church or whether this person has a mission from God, right? Because that's, that's the same thing that we are, all Christians believe about their pastors, right? Is they think that these pastors are somehow, they don't have a theory of apostolic succession like we do, but they think, well, that's that's the point of pastors, right? Is to represent God somehow, right? And you say, well, uh, uh, can a bad person preach the gospel? Well, I mean, yeah, they can, right? They can preach accurately what's in it, even though their, their moral life is personally bad, right? So in the same way, we think, I mean, of course, the people Christ appointed can have a mission, and they can have that mission irrespective of their moral state right? So like Judas was as much an apostle as the others. He had as much authority from Christ as the others. Now there is an authority that comes from being a good, holy human being as well, right? That's a different kind of authority, moral authority or something we might call it. Uh, of course, a bad pope don't got that, right? Um, and no bad priest has that. But there are also holy popes in our history who had lots of good moral authority and became, right, beacons in the history of Christianity, Gregory the Great, Leo the Great, and now we have uh, John Paul II was another one who I think even for many Protestants, like Billy Graham loved him, right? You know, they had moral authority in addition to what we think of as, as their authority in the church. But what I want to point out is, in fact, it's actually, here's here's an interesting point. It's It's critical and central to the gospel that we should affirm no power in the church comes from our own selves right? The power in the church, if it's really church power, right? The sort of thing that Christ gave us, 
the the roles in the church and the things that the priests or pastors can do, their power comes from Christ, right? Whether it's when we mean like the power of preaching, right? The power of the truth, right? That power comes from Jesus, not from the, the person, right? No matter how good they are at explaining the Bible to people, the power of the gospel to change people's lives and to save them comes from Jesus, not from me, right? No matter how good I am at explaining it. In the same way, that's what we think about, about the, the church's offices and the sacraments. They're God's power, not ours, right? Uh, the pastors are represent Jesus, and to the extent to which they're successful, <laughs> they have that from Jesus, not from themselves. So it'd be kind of a works righteousness if you thought that the power in the church came from our own moral standing, right? That's, that's, not, how, that's not how it ever should work, right? You shouldn't just pick your pastor because they're they're nice people right that's that's not what makes us uh, preachers of the gospel right it's just because you think they're a nice person um we're supposed to trust in the gospel they preach um so that's basically the idea is the authority of the pastors in the church come from the christ promise and that involves limitations on that authority it doesn't come from their own desires or holiness or will so even in our church the pope and the other bishops are bound by things that are not things they do, right? In that sense, you know, Catholics are willing to say things like, well, scripture and tradition are, uh, I'm sorry, there's a bug right here. Uh, scripture and tradition uh, are above revelation. The Bible is above uh, the, the Pope and the bishops, right? They're bound by it in many ways. Uh, and, uh, just as our veneration for their authority is not a veneration for their person, but for what they represent, right? We, we venerate the pastors because they represent Jesus's teaching, not because they're, they're just nice people. Um, so I just end by saying on the, on the one hand, with bad popes or bad pastors, nothing about our salvation depends on them being good people, depends on our popes or our bishops or our pastors being holy people. Because the holiness of the church, the holiness of the gospel, comes from Jesus, right? So you, you can trust in, in the gospel preached by a bad person. You can put your trust in sacraments, the mass, baptism, that are, that are given to you by a, a bad priest, right? Or a bad pastor, right? They, because they come from Jesus. That's, that's who we're trusting when you trust in these sacraments. In the same way, uh, when we have a pastor who's appointed and put in place, right? His role is from Jesus. So his role represents Jesus. So we, we, we honor that. We don't honor the person, um, right? So even for the Pope, it's the same thing. So being a bad person doesn't, doesn't make the office go away or doesn't even deprive the office of its value, right? Because the Pope's role is just to represent Jesus, right? To be the bishop, right? So on the other hand, though, right? The pastors are supposed to promote the unity of the church and to represent Jesus. So the fact someone's a priest or a pope doesn't make them immune to the moral standards that they should be living up to that office, right? So all I'm saying on the one hand is they don't lose the office just because they're bad people, or the office isn't by itself then noxious and evil and harmful because a bad person is using it, just like a bad preacher doesn't necessarily, a morally bad preacher who's not a heretic, doesn't necessarily like lead people into error, 
right? Somebody could learn good things from a person that's morally evil, right? That happens all the time, Protestant preachers. So the fact someone uh, is a priest or a pope who has this office doesn't, however, make them immune to correction. It doesn't mean we don't have any, any obligations, right? So, so the point I'm making now on the other side is this, right? We have laws, <laughs> right? This, this is the beauty of the church, right? This is when we, we talk about having an institution. That's precisely the point here, is we need to have laws so that when part of the point of the laws is when there's a priest that's doing bad things, we have a process for removing them with a trial, right? So they're fairly represented and all that kind of stuff, right? Or we have a bad bishop. We have trials. That's what we do. We have canon law. That's the whole point of that whole system is to be able to come up with a way to determine, right, if somebody is failing in some serious way morally, how do we deal with it? Um, so it's part of our task as members of the church to prompt our pastors to strive for holiness, to seek good reform in the church. But I think that's something everybody should share. I mean, I don't really think, I think when you, when you pull it down to Protestants, you know, Protestants are not so far away. Right? We have a lot in common, and we recognize there's some, some obvious things here. Right, We're all going to have pastors. We all recognize what pastors are supposed to do. And we all recognize that right, being a bad person doesn't mean that you're going right, to, that God can't use you. But on the other hand, we need to have procedures right, to deal with that, because we, we re recognize the bad things that happen when there are bad people in positions of authority. So that's why we think, right, they need to be subject to checks and balances, right? No one person holds absolute authority. Um, and I think that's true in the church as well. So uh, there have been famous uh, questions throughout Christian history, Catholic history, about limitations on the papacy, for instance. Uh, I'm not going to go into all that, but the basic idea we've always had is there are limitations, uh, and people are subject to those, even when they're popes. Uh, there are corrections we can give them. There are things that can be done. Um, but, you know, the thing in the end of the day is, you know, even if we thought they were immune, right, the idea is they're like the Supreme Court. Supreme Court justices, by the way, are immune in certain ways from civil prosecution too, right? Um, but they have a term, right? And uh, uh, the Pope has a term too, right? So, uh, there's, there's similar ways in which civil or other ecclesial uh, setups in other churches or other countries already represent the sort of thing we're doing. We have, we have the basic idea is nobody's immune to correction. So uh, the fact that there are bad popes doesn't undermine the validity of the system, right? Yeah, I think that's really helpful, Father Rooney, because now like it seems like to me like your response um, – is more of a Catholic version, but if you ask like a Protestant pastor, like why they're bad, like pastors, they'd say something similar um, without obviously the Catholic language, um, but it'd be very similar. And I think that's a very helpful way of just thinking about this. Yeah, I don't think it's a unique objection to Catholicism. Mm -hmm. It's an objection to Christianity, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. If you thought bad people undermine the validity of the Christian message, well, you shouldn't be Christian, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it turns out, right, God, God writes straight with crooked lines, right? Yeah. So it seems like almost that maybe some people expect, the, like on the outside, maybe expect that if the Pope is who it is, then that they would be someone that's like morally perfect or close to it. 
but it seems like in like the Catholic view, like that's just not the case. Um, if that's not the case, like, if there isn't that expectation, then there's going to be bad popes. And it's the same question as like, why are there bad priests or bad pastors? He's just a pastor. Um, he's just a special kind of pastor. He's just got a, he's, he's not a regional pastor. He's in, he's, he's, uh, he's in charge of Rome and he has a, he has a universal mission. Okay. But I mean, he's a pastor like anybody else. Mm -hmm. Well, Father Rooney, anything else you want to like cover or talk about before we wrap up here? I, I just wanted to ask where you are after all this. So I mean, uh, you had some you had some some objections here that I I've tried to go through and tried to answer a few different things. But I mean, uh, uh, what do you think after all this stuff? Do you have any Do you have any thoughts, or is it just uh, water off a duck's back? No, there's a lot. So one for me, like, there's a lot to like process and like things I want to like read and research and get into this like debate a little bit more. Um, to me, it's been helpful kind of like going through, like I see like what the Catholic church is more clearly now, like thinking about like the structure of like uh, priests and bishops and the Pope and whatnot. And to me, it's just coming down to like the question of like, well, do I think that like, is it true? Like I kind of go back to the idea of like, I'm just thinking about it as a Protestant. I'm like, well, do I actually think like what we're saying about this being like the true church? Is that really the case? Um, and to do that, I think I really have to like dive into like reading the history more um reading what protestants would say in response and that's kind of where i'm at so like with these objections like the one that like i'd put the most stock in this qu the question of like well like is the church really like necessary and thinking about like that kind of thing and in response to me it's like well i just got to research this more it's kind of where i'm at yeah i mean i'd uh i just say on the one hand i think it's it's a good thing research uh to ask yourself about this i mean i think the uh, if I can put it this way, the history of Christianity to me uh, just demonstrates in basic ways why you need something like this. Because I think here's here's the basic thing. People fight about theology all the time, right? I just had that big fight about universalism, right? So uh, uh, who gets to decide whether that's a serious issue or not, right? I think, I think the church has already decided it on my side, right? Uh, a lot of people say, oh, I'm just pushing Catholic lines to people. I'm just criticizing them for not being Catholic. Well, I think the sort of arguments I would make, I think, are open to everybody to accept, right? I mean, I tried to give you my arguments last time. I don't think they're, I didn't just argue Pope Leo the 10th said this, and therefore you should believe it, right? I gave you general reasons from, from philosophy and theology for thinking there's a problem with, with universalism. But in the end, it does come down to, if I'm right, right, it would be serious, right? I said, I said universalism undermines the gospel, right? And I thought that was serious, right? And some of the other people I, I argue with, like Father Al Kimmel, one of these Orthodox priests, he says, well, of course not. Of course not. It doesn't undermine the gospel. It is the gospel to believe universalism, right? And uh, I've challenged them. They're members of an Orthodox church, Al Kimmel and David Bentley Hart. And I said, well, you know, you're not a member of my church, but you're a member of a church that has authority too. So here's how we decide it. We go talk to the bishops, <laughs> your bishops, and we ask them what they think about this, right? Um, now they've declined that. They said they don't really believe the bishops could prohibit them, which I think is not good for an Orthodox person to say, right? If you think the bishops have no authority over me, right? Over my doctrine, right? But that that's what I mean though, is is in general, why you might think a church is necessary is there are some fights where you have to go to the church to decide it, right? That's what 
Jesus even says right in Matthew, right? When you uh, uh, are, are determining some question, right? Take them to the church to decide it. So uh, I think there are uh, serious questions like this stuff about universalism where I think uh, I've encountered some people in philosophy. So, you know, I'm in philosophy of religion and we get a lot of people who are inspired by, God bless him, William Lane Craig uh, and some other Protestant apologists, right? Who go into philosophy of religion. And I'll just say, this is, this is my experience. Some people go into philosophy of religion to sort of figure out what they believe, <laughs> right? They want to go into theology to sort of figure out how many articles of the Nicene Creed they want to accept, right? <laughs> Do I want to accept, you know, article one, article two, article three? I got to argue myself into it. Well, I think that's all mixed up. Uh, it seems to me that like the question should be something like this. What, what does the Christian church believe? What did Jesus' apostles believe? And, uh, you know, uh, it shouldn't be this sort of thing where we have to decide all elements of theology by ourselves. That seems like a mixed up way to do, the, to do theology, just because the point of faith is we trust God, right? We're not trusting ourselves. We're trusting what God wants us to believe. Um, so maybe that's just the last thing I'd say is maybe with some of this, I, I just say, you know, don't discount the Holy Spirit in all this. I mean, I think with uh, people who convert, uh, you know, uh, the most important step is to ask him what he thinks. <laughs> so uh, that, that would be my advice. Yeah, and I think that's something I agree with. Like, ultimately, we do need to trust God. Um, and that's something that can help us as we go through these journeys and think about these questions. So, Father Rooney, thank you so much for coming on today. Uh, there's a lot for me to think about. And, like, you really encouraged me just to, like, read and research more on this topic. Uh, there's so much here. And, yeah, that's that. Any, like, anything you want to say about how can people, like, follow you, connect with you, things like that? Well, people can follow me through my uh... – uh, I put up my academic papers on academia.edu. I have a professional website on Google Sites. Uh, and, uh, of course, people probably know me through Twitter a little bit. Uh, and uh, I think that's about it. I'm not, I'm not super – I'm a little too on Twitter sometimes, but I'm not really all that accessible online, all things considered. So uh, academia.edu or something, fill papers for philosophy – uh, I have a lot of professional stuff that comes out that way. I have, I should say, uh, two things coming out uh, soon in uh, Law and Liberty is going to have a piece of mine on uh, government. The apotheosis of the state is what I called the paper. Uh, it's about sort of uh, religion and, and government. Uh, and then the other uh, paper is coming out in Church Life Journal. So like some of what I wrote about I wrote something there actually about the church, uh, democracy in the church, that might be interesting for people who follow this conversation. I have the three articles on universalism, and I have an article coming out uh, in Church Life Journal on uh, the plenary inspiration of scripture, another point on which I, I've argued with some universalists. Some of them don't think scripture is wholly inspired. So I'm defending the good Protestant line, sola scriptura. Uh, we Dominicans defended it. You know, that was sort of our position. We, we called it the material sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, we thought everything uh, necessary for Catholic doctrine is found in Scripture somehow. So that was our famous Dominican position. I kind of indirectly defend it right at the end. I say, ah, well, there we go. The Protestants are right. Um, but uh, 
it's in the, the I, I try to defend that because I think some people are worried about errors in scripture or contradictions in scripture. So I try to defend, uh, give an account of what that's about. So it should be coming out in Church Life Journal soon. Well, that's so awesome. And I look forward to continuing to talk with you, dialogue with you, follow your work, because uh, it's so cool what you're doing, Father Rooney. You're in so many different areas. Uh, but you always, to me, like when I've talked with you these few times, just seem so like grounded um, and humble even throughout it all. So thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate your time. We'll leave a link down below where people can follow you, connect with you, things like that. And if you're new to here in Apologetics, always encourage you to subscribe, like, all that fun stuff. And if you want to financially support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash here in Apologetics. You can do that for as little as a dollar a month. Um, and that support would be huge. But Father Rooney, thank you so much for coming on today. I really, really appreciate your time. Yeah, God bless. Yeah, thank you everyone for listening. Have a good one and God bless.